Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, thank you for joining us. My name is Daniel Strain, and I'm here with my co-host, Thomas Schenk. Hello. And Lee Anderson. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the good life. Uh, this is a phrase that's often used as uh, in reference to a lot of different philosophies and, and spiritual practice, the goal of spiritual practice. So we're going to talk about, uh, from the spiritual naturalist perspective, of course, uh, what is the good life? What do we mean by that? And uh, I think like a lot of these issues, you're going to find variation among spiritual naturalists, but um, we're here to provide at least three takes on it, three good examples, and uh, we want to hear your takes on it too. So be sure and leave us comments on our webpage. Uh, each episode has its own webpage. You can leave comments there or feel free to write us anytime. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So uh, this was, uh, today's topic was Thomas's idea. Um, Please. Oh, it was Lee's idea. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I don't know why I was thinking that. Sorry, Lee. And um, so let's hear from you first. Uh, what are your, your initial thoughts on this, the good life? Well, in talking about um, the good life itself without first bringing into spiritual naturalism, I associate a good life with both um, your outlook on life and then kind of your code of morality. And I think when I was young, the very first time that I ever thought about what a good life was, you know, you, you people bring in things, uh, outside influences, you know, like money and having a good house and everything like that. But my family went on a vacation to Mexico and we went to a part of uh, one of the small cities where there were these really small houses, but each house was painted in a different color. I remember they all had fences around the front and each one of them had planted like flowers or something out there. And even being young, I could recognize that those people didn't have as much money as, you know, we had, but that they were making the best of what they had. They were happy. They were proud of what they had. I mean, you could tell that the people that lived in these houses were happy people. And, and that was the first time that the concept of a good life being something that's outside of, you know, having money or something like that came to me. And, and so I, from that point on, kind of associated having a good uh, life with, more with your outlook on life than what you have physically. How old were you when that happened? Uh, about eight or nine, maybe 10. I know some 40-year-olds uh, for whom that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Thomas? What was your first thought when you hear the phrase, the good life? 
Well, um, I think in, in terms of, uh, you know, I, it's been something my, I've always been interested in is the question for myself is, you know, am I living the best possible life or what is, what is the best life for me to live? And I've been asking myself that question from a very young age and I've, and I've been experimenting and, and, um, uh, you know, the important, the, the thing I want to emphasize though is the good life for me. I don't, I don't believe in the idea that there is a good life for everybody that um, you get this a lot of times where this in philosophy, it's like, we're going to come up with this idea of what is the good life and that should be the good thing for everybody. But I think everybody's different. We have different temperaments. Um, and uh, so I think the, you know, that would be the, the one, the, the one reservation about talking about the good life is I think each person has to ask it about their own, Self, uh, there may be some universal aspects to the good life, but I think that um, I think that's where a lot of Western philosophy gets mistaken is by assuming that there is a once and for all good life. But uh, I certainly agree with Lee that um, we we overemphasize the the need for material goods to have a a, a good life. I don't. Uh, you know, it's it's nice, certainly nice to have a certain degree of of comfort and security and possibilities. But beyond that, I don't I don't think I, I think wealth can actually be a detriment uh, to a good life. But there's kind of a funny. My my brother's an economist, a, a professor of economics, and he always asks his introductory class. He asks the students to uh, to write down what would they rather be: happy and poor or unhappy and rich. And he says the majority of students would prefer to be unhappy and rich, which he finds to be, and I find to be a really uh, a mysterious thing. But I think it is that uh, for a lot of young people, they can't quite imagine um, being poor and happy, and maybe they can't really imagine being rich and unhappy. But uh, uh, I know there's a lot of people in the world who have, relative to us, are extremely poor, who who are quite happy. So. Uh, so I do think that's the, that's, I think the spiritual take on happiness is, is that it's, um, it is kind of a spirit, you know, there's a spiritual quality to happiness and, you know, people, these monks out in the forest of India who probably are living a happy, a happier life than we can imagine without anything. I really, you know, I think that's quite realistic, uh, because happiness is a, a more of an internal quality than an external quality. Yeah, I think the uh, there was a I, I saw a documentary recently called Happiness and uh, talked a, a lot about that and I don't remember exactly uh, whether uh, what I'm about to say came from there or something else I read, but uh, I think there was a study not too long ago that tried to at least do a sampling and correlate. You know, at what point does wealth play a role in happiness? And I think what they found was that up to a certain uh, this is, I think, calibrated to America, but up to a certain uh, wealth level, uh, it, it helps you because you're covering, you know, basic needs. You're making sure that you have at least enough to cover uh, your, your most critical needs and then a little extra for, you know, like having free time and able to do fun things or whatever. And what they found is that after 70000 a year, I think that was the level. Yeah, it's close to what I've heard too. 
Yeah, that after that point, it uh, it no longer had an impact on happiness, or or the the correlation went away. So, um, <clears throat> but of course, you know, we've talked about practices before that uh, can even be provide a sense of uh, inner inner strength, inner confidence, inner inner uh, equanimity, even in harsh times, even when you're, you're less than that. I, I think in that documentary, they interviewed a, a, a man who had a family and they lived in kind of a half built shack type thing, but uh, everybody around them was in a similar sort of situation. And uh, it looked like fairly desperate uh, sort of situation, but he was happy and they got by and, and what have you. Now, obviously, if you're you're starving or something, that's going to greatly impact uh, your ability to do anything else. But um, this this the idea that wealth can actually be a detriment. I, I was really interested to hear you say that. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, Marcus Aurelius, who said that even in a palace, it is possible to live well. And um, you know, from his point of view, the palace made it less likely to live well because his definition of living well was not just indulgence. Um, and so he, he viewed it as a, as a challenge uh, that he had to overcome this fact that he had all this wealth and power. Marcus Aurelius, of course, was a uh, Roman emperor. Um, I also like it that you said that uh, you've been asking that question for a long time you know, it's like the examined life, Socrates saying the examined life is not worth living. Unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and then I also wanted to mention these, uh, this, some other concepts that intersect with this idea of the good life. Um, in ancient Greece, they, they used the word eudaimonia. Or eudaimonia. Um, and uh, which literally the the breakdown of the uh, etymology means uh, uh, good soul or healthy soul. Um, I guess you'd call it uh, uh, mental health <laughs> today. Um, and then the way it's translated very often is as flourishing. And flourishing kind of generally gets the idea across, but it's it's not really material wealth, but it's kind of a, a, an inner flourishing that's independent of circumstance um, or that helps you get through bad circumstances. Um, and of course, the uh, Epicureans had, were of the opinion that certain circumstances were required for true happiness. And the Stoics believed that uh, that happiness could be had regardless of circumstance. And uh, I imagine some people, most people are somewhere in between. I, I've noticed that we've jumped from the question, what is the good life uh, to kind of an assumption that happiness is a, a very big part of that, which I think is, you know, certainly I think most of us uh, would, would feel that way. Um, Aristotle, of course, as you mentioned, he, uh, we often translate the, that word eudaimonia into happiness, although I think it's a much more nuanced term. 
But um, yeah. I think Leah brought up the, the, the other side of that, of the good life also equating to the moral life. And that's a little, that's another kind of interesting question is, um, you know, what, uh, particularly, I think, from a spiritual naturalist, just how do we, how do we look at that question? Um, I, I, I'll, I'll only say that I have no more than the, the golden rule to go by. I, I, uh, I think people can get really comp, you know, get uh, into a lot of complexities, but I kind of go back to the, I mean, as a, as a real basic notion for me, that is about as far as I get is, is that, uh, you know, to do unto others as they you'd have them do unto you. But the real thing about that is you have to really kind of understand yourself and what, what you really would like to have done to you in order to really understand, you know, to, to kind of empathize and sympathize to the point where you could kind of really realize how I would, you know, how I would like other people to behave to me and, and turn that around and, and behave that, that way towards other people. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And it, it's hard to convince someone who's starting out in, in the position of, well, why should I care about any of that? Why don't I just do whatever I can get away with? And, you know, uh, as a naturalist, uh, obviously we don't have any kind of notion of some kind of uh, supernatural overseer to enforce anything. But I think that um, one of the things I've found really profound about a lot of ancient philosophies uh, that approach the good life are their keen insights on human nature and what kinds of things lead to a healthy, happy life. And today, uh, we would put that in terms of you know, the facts of surrounding us being a social animal and having certain healthy psychological uh, drives and instincts and responses. And I think most people would agree that if your sense of empathy is so dulled that you don't have one, you're a sociopath or a psychopath and you have, uh, that's a problem. That's a malady <laughs> that it's not just, uh, <clears throat> you know, another way to be. It's something is wrong with your normal functioning as a human being. Um, so, Lee, what what do you think of uh, how how do how do this how does this confluence between uh, ethically good and good in the uh, happiness pleasurable sense how how do those two things intersect for you? Well, when I was think originally thinking about it, um, the concept of living a good life and like I said, um, having a good outlook on life was kind of an, the external concept. And then like Thomas said, the moral compass is more the internal concept. So that's kind of where they intersect. And when you think about different people around the world and the different uh, religious frameworks that people live by and ev everything, everyone does have a different moral code that is their own moral code. I think the golden rule, like Thomas said, hopefully applies to everybody. And then to different degrees, you apply things to yourself. But it, it's one of those things that 
internally, you know whether you feel good about doing something and you know when you do something and you don't feel good. And so, like you said, not having empathy and things like that, sometimes, I guess if there's a physical reason for things like that, people don't know that what they're doing is not good, but you would think that most of the time people do know. And as far as spiritual naturalism is concerned, I mean, one of our big tenets is compassion. And so even though we don't have a specific moral code, as a spiritual naturalist, I think if you didn't have that aspect of compassion morally, you probably wouldn't feel that you are living a good life. And so that's kind of where I see the intersection. Yeah, I kind of look at it as, uh, you know, I, a lot of um, naturalists might view ethics as subjective, um, but I think that, uh, I think of these things as objective in the sense that um, it's kind of a matter of, of engineering, of interpersonal engineering or psychological engineering. You know, it's kind of like human beings have a certain nature to them. And yes, it's very variable, as you pointed out, Thomas, uh, as, in terms of interests and personality types and things like that. But as social animals, I think we also will tend to have problems if we're doing things that are, that are uh, unvirtuous, if we're doing things that are against our nature as, as social beings, it'll start to take a toll. And I think one of the things that you see is uh, a lot of times you see people who are living bad lives, uh, uh, bad, morally bad lives, um, you'll see kind of a self-destructiveness going on. Um, and I think what happens is that we have this innate liking of good. That's why our, our, our main characters and most of our stories are hero, heroes there, or people who are sympathetic in some way. And I think we have this natural liking of goodness. And when we see it in other people, it generates a respect. Even if you're a person who goes around doing bad things, there's a certain level of admiration there. And when you see it in yourself, when you don't see it in yourself, I think it generates kind of a subconscious disliking of self, a kind of a, a disrespect for yourself. And that comes out in a lot of destructive ways. I, I think an interesting uh, an interesting question on all this from the spiritual or from from the naturalistic point of view, uh, really not so much the spiritual is um, a lot when when a lot of people in naturalism, uh, of course, are quite aware of uh, biological evolution and genetics and, and put a lot of emphasis on the natural uh, on the biological. But the whole the whole kind of moral uh, framework is this fact that we really are we are a biological being on the one side uh, that has genetics that go back to, they say that, you know, some of the genetics go back to the dinosaurs and times and earlier, but we are also um, very adjustable and we can learn and we can, to some extent, uh, learn to override our biological impulse. And in a certain sense, we, we need to 
override our biological impulses as we see so much today on the news of this person and that person who's being accused of sexual abuse or sexual misbehaviors of one form or another. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who just can't, who, who are, who are not overriding that biological motive at a time when they probably should. And this, this becomes, I think, um, one of the places where I think naturalist, naturalistic thinking can get a little bit in the way of people uh, morally is by not, um, by overemphasizing biology and underemphasizing culture. And I think that this is the real, the real kind of hard thing of, of morality is that we really are divided beings. We've got, uh, we can have ideals that are very much at odds with our natural inclinations. And try, but if we if we get too much in that direction, we get into the kind of the whole kind of problem that Freud brought up so much of the repressiveness and stuff. So trying to get this kind of proper balance in our own lives, this harmony between um, a kind of an, uh, a culturally based ideal that that brings us happiness, and yet where we still can deal with our bodies and what our, our instincts, these old animal instincts that are still very much with us and that can cause humans at times to become very bestial in the very worst sense. Um, that, that's, really, that's really the trick. And I do think that's one place where naturalism, you know, where spiritual is added to naturalism, we can hopefully, you know, kind of bring some balance in that because we have to you know, hopefully it can address those two sides of our human uh, human nature. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think you're right that there's all kinds of impulses that I think even go back further than, than the dinosaurs. I mean, you know, when you pull your hand off of a hot stove, that's an impulse that comes from single-celled organisms, you know. So a lot of these things are, are incredibly deeply... Uh, ingrained into us and the way I look at it is like you've got this slow growing neural network uh, that's kind of hardwired from this genetic history and then you've got these areas of the brain that are more adaptable and you've got uh, neurons that can form new connections the plastic part of the brain that and so you know it's like we had these basic impulses of a wide variety some of them we would today classify as hostile or whatever, and then others are uh, empathetic and, and that sort of thing. And all of those served us well, and then we get to this point where we have this, this rationality, this, this powers of reason to figure out things, and this becomes, we've gone from the blunt hammer to the fine laser scalpel when it comes to being able to figure out situations and what is the most productive course of action. And so now we can very quickly adapt and figure these things out, but they're not as deeply ingrained. They're just on the surface level where we just kind of know it intellectually, but that doesn't help the fact that uh, now that we know, okay, if we get together and we cooperate, we make these societies and we behave in these ways, we're going to have, you know, uh, success. But all of those old impulses are still around. Some of the old impulses actually lend themselves to that, you know, like empathy. Your, your, your natural ability to empathize is an is a old social instinct. You know, it's, it's probably in the dolphins and the elephants and wolves and other social animals. And others are 
not helpful in our new situation of civilization we find ourselves in. And I think, and, and it may vary by situation as well, but I think part of our civilizing of our development and, our, and part of our spiritual practice is being able to cultivate those responses that allow us to, uh, you know, more easily, uh, be the kind of person who responds in helpful, wise, uh, beneficial ways and master those, understand and deal with those impulses that uh, are not productive to that. At least that's kind of how I look at it. Um, what do you think, Lee? Well, I agree too that, uh, like you were talking about, people started out as individuals and then they got together, um, you know, in groups or societies. When you've got a group think that um, is geared towards empathy and things like that, it, it's easier. It's a lot harder as an individual to kind of live your own moral code if it goes against what everyone else around you is thinking and I think as a society right now that's a lot of where we're having our problems is that there is such a diverse kind of basic code for what people think is right and how they empathize or are compassionate you know towards each other so what one person may think um, is, you know, going far enough, you know, is, well, I helped you up out of your chair or something like that is not really uh, the definition of what any, somebody else would say is empathy or compassion or something like that. So it makes it harder as an individual to either not know or not understand what somebody else's definition of that type of kind of moral code is. And then also as spiritual naturalists, again, we kind of go back to the fact that we have some consistent beliefs, but a lot of people are different in what they believe. So you just don't know sometimes to what degree, uh, you know, people will believe that something is a good moral code and then it's something they don't need to worry about. Yeah, I, I think that um, kind of my conception of, of some of what's happened lately in the world and societies, you know, if you imagine like a, a small village somewhere and uh, I guess use an American example, you've got a little church in, in the town um, <clears throat> back in the day, you know, <laughs> whatever you got a little church in the town and everybody would go to that church and there'd be different farmers and stuff. And sometimes they would have disagreements and uh, somebody's mule would destroy something, somebody's fence, or there'd be these little things that happen, you know, and, but they all went to that same church and that church talked about, uh, forgiveness and, you know, you know, the Jesus 
ethics of uh, love your neighbor and uh, you know all these kind of base very um, foundational generalized principles of uh, of getting along with one another right so uh, there was this common ground everybody could kind of it had been kind of inculcated into them uh, this is what's right this is how and so then you know, when your fence is destroyed by somebody else's mule, you don't go kill them. You, you go and you say, hey, you did this. And then that person sharing your values would then go, oh, yeah, I guess I was wrong. Sorry about that. I'm going to re rebuild your fence. And that was my, my, my fault. You know, so that, that all kind of like worked. But now, not only do we have, you know, groups interacting with one another that used to be isolated and they have their own religious and ethical beliefs and that may vary but we've also got a situation where massive numbers of people are no longer subscribing to the um worldview on which those religious lessons were based and so it's like there's no real common ground for for uh, our diverse society i think our diversity is a strength in in more ways than it than the challenges it presents but um it is a thing that we need to think about and having general values that are are general enough to where everybody can agree on. i think the golden rule is a great starting point you know it's a great example that thomas brought up but uh, another thing that happens is that, um, you know, as there, as as those, as people have these different beliefs and everything, um, these religions have very often undermined their own credibility in society by becoming overly political. You know, um, the Christian Church in America has gotten into you know uh, the conservative christian church you know when they when they started the the christian coalition and they got into politics and everything um uh, i've read that billy graham didn't like that direction that he didn't like to get into that sort of thing but then they became very in, entwined in politics and this has happened in a lot of different groups where the society then starts to think of them as just another partisan just another side in the culture wars. And, and so they, so fewer people then would go to them and agree to have them be the arbiter of how you work out these differences because they've taken sides on something highly specific or partisan. Um, so as an individual practitioner, you know, that leaves us all to kind of muddy through this, whether we're naturalists or not, but especially the naturalists. Um, I, I like the idea of going back to basics. Um, that's why I explore ancient philosophy because really the goal of ancient philosophers was, you know, what is the best way to live? And, or at least a lot of them, you know, they also had the natural sciences and everything, but all those things were interconnected and uh, natural philosophy, I should say. But later philosophers, they got much more specialized. And so there would be, you know, philosophers that are only looking at like the the power dynamics of different economies and things like that, you know. So, but when you go back to ancient philosophy, now you're talking about something that is, that all of us have been 
challenged with our in our daily lives and how do you deal with these things how do i deal with things in myself uh, what do you think thomas um well going back to ancient philosophy actually you're there's a t you're hitting a topic that i've been uh, doing some research on there is um i i, I i've always in terms of ethics aristotle is kind of my starting point even though you know the if you read Aristotle, there's a lot of things to disagree with, but I think some of the, the basic uh, framework in which he characterizes um, ethics is one that I think gets us, gets us further because it starts with self-interest. And I think you cannot start ethics out in the abstract. I think you got to start it in a concrete place. And, I, and so I like that about, um, you know, he, he's telling us why we should be interested because uh, we want to be, we want to be happy. We want to have uh, to flourish, to have the good a good life, and so he's starting from that what he considers a common desire of all of us to have a, a good life, and then goes outward from that to say why uh, we should be interested in certain things and how they impact uh, the good life. But the particular question I've been trying to get deeper in with Aristotle is: it seems to me that that the, the way Aristotle uses the word rationality and reason is considerably different from the way they're used today. And I think that the way the Stoics also use those words. And I think what, what the ancients, when they talked about the, a human being as a rational creature, one of the things they really had in mind was that we could govern our own behavior. And um, that that's where rationality starts with is a couple of things, you know, directing outward, setting a goal, and then achieving that goal uh, in, inward to, to do somewhat this similar and, and create what Aristotle would call virtue. Um, but in either case, whether we're uh, trying to achieve an external goal like build a house or an internal goal like create virtue, it's a rational activity. That's for, I think for, I believe that for Aristotle, that's kind of what he thinks of as rational activity. And the intellectual part is really based on the strategies we use. And I think in our own time, rationality and reason have become much more, um, much less contextualized. They're, they, they're out there, um, intellect for the purpose of intellect, uh, knowledge for the purpose of knowledge, rather than as it was for the ancients that you you had a much more concrete goal for, for knowledge. It wasn't a matter of just learning for the sake of learning. And um, I mean, th that issue of self-governance, I think to me gets to the, very, to the very basis of morality, but it also gets to the basis of that question we were just talking about a little while ago about the difference between our natural instincts and our ability to, to behave differently than our instincts would have us behave, and and I think, um, I think all I think all the whether we we're talking India or China or Greece, all of them have a certain similarity in that they're all much more concrete. They're all much more concerned about bringing these that our our ideas have this really pragmatic effect of creating a a better life. And when we get to the Enlightenment period, we have these philosophers who are trying to create some universal rule. Um, that was a big you know, big concern of Kant is a universal rule of behavior. And this is the thing I really don't, I don't think that's useful at all. Like, cause I don't believe in 
that kind of universality of uh, outside of the most, you know, these basic things. So I, I do also, in terms of philosophy, I have very little interest in it. Um, after, after Boethius in the ancient world, I have very little interest in philosophy um, because of, just because of that reason, as I think that modern philosophy uh, really isn't to the point in a certain way. It's, it's, it's superseded by science because everything of importance that philosophy can do is, can be done by science. But the part that science can't do is precisely what the ancients were trying to do, which is to get us into the inside and to create a good life from the inside out rather than from the outside in. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's, uh, what do you think, Lee? Can you hear me without hearing a bunch of rain and in the background? <laughs> so a storm has arrived. A storm has arrived, yes. The rain okay. makes it interesting. Yeah, it really does, especially on a, a, a tin roof like this. Um, you know, I, I think that's really interesting what Thomas had to say, that the ancients viewed a good life as looking from the inside out rather, you know, than the outside in. And I, I would definitely tend to agree with that's what we should be looking at. And I think especially as spiritual naturalists, we should be looking inside first and living, you know, our good life with our ideals of compassion and what makes us good people and then looking at it you know externally like that yeah I, I kind of I think I share your um, your uh, general outlook Thomas on uh, the um, the the more elaborate ethical theories that came along later um, because these universal rules and, and uh, these constructs of this is what makes something ethical and what doesn't make something ethical. And I think they become very provincial without the people who design them realizing how provincial they are. And also, I think, at least my experience, because I used to get into that a lot. I was big into philosophy, of course. And, you know, so I, um, I thought about things in that way, like, oh, you can figure out this system whereby you can punch it through the computer and and figure out what's ethical and what isn't. And um, what I found was that when it came to real life situations, those kinds of elaborate ethical theories weren't very helpful because uh, so often you don't have all of the variables to put into the system. You don't have all the information. And also so often you don't really know what the impact of your different decisions are going to be. So while you can come up with, uh, you know, specific examples, like, you know, there's five people on this railroad track and there's one person on this track. And do you pull the switch if you got to save four people to kill one, you know, you can come up with these isolated examples to prove principles, but the real life is really complicated and really, and it's happening in real time and you've got to do something or not do something. And that's why I've found that the, that virtue ethics worked a lot better for me in those kinds of situations. Cause I could, I could just fall back on basic principles. Um, the least of which, not the least of which is compassion 
as you mentioned, Lee, um, that compassion, you just, I, I got into complex situations and families, uh, back and forth stuff. And I, I just found that if I just say, okay, what, what can I do? That's the compassionate response. And that worked better than trying to figure out, well, this person did this and it violated this principle and this person did that. And therefore they owe this person that and here's what's right and here's what's wrong. And here's what everybody needs to do. I just focused on how can I be the most compassionate person in this situation? And it, and it just, it worked a lot better. It's like the difference between, you know, mountain climbing and standing at the bottom of the mountain telling the climber where they need to place each foot because of your knowledge of geology or something, you know. And, oh, another thing I was going to mention is the, uh, you, you talked about, you know, everybody wants to be uh, happy. And it, it made me think of the Dalai Lama who says his starting place is that all, all beings want to be happy. Um, and so that's real similar to Aristotle. And um, I think their approach to reason, that was another thing uh, that you mentioned. Um, if you look at ancient philosophers, ancient Greek philosophers, especially, you know, they're, they're talking about reason, rationality. And what they didn't have yet was the formalized scientific method uh, of course, that came along in the Enlightenment. And without that formalized method, it wasn't quite as apparent how critical uh, physical evidence and observation were to knowledge. And so you had the argumentation and the logical part going on, and you had the fact that these philosophers were trying to approach things in a rational manner. Um, but you would end up with situa funny situations like, you know, Socrates could start off saying something like, we all know that fish swim in the water, right? And everybody agrees to that. And then he would go from one thing to the next, the next. And then finally, by the end of his argument, he's, therefore, we know that men have souls and they live on past. You know, it's like he would get from one thing to the next because they're trying to generate all of their knowledge through nothing but argumentation right. and analysis without feeding it with that fuel of evidence. And now we have like a good, uh, I think what we can do now is we can take that basic rational approach that the ancients had and we can be, gain the benefits of understanding, you know, things scientifically today and we merge that all together and we can take the latest science in psychology and things like that and have that continue to inform our, our spiritual practice. I think, though, where you really get to um, that, the real fine tuning of that distinction between um, natural impulse and what we are trying to do from a learned thing is, uh, I find that in meditation, that, because I think meditating is a very unnatural thing to do, and I, I'm sure there's some, <laughs> some connections. Um, sometimes I think that uh, in, in, in that there may be uh, in meditation, I'm tapping into some something that, like particularly when I've, I watch my cat, I used to have a cat, unfortunately died not so long ago, but uh, it's like a, he, the cat always seems like a perfect meditator, you know, and I think as hunters, we maybe have some kind of a, 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 an impulse that would be somewhat similar to the mental states that um, one gets to in meditation, that kind of intense mindfulness that a, you know, that a stalker um, 
needs in, in hunting. But I think that on the whole, meditation is a, is a battle of, you're trying to do something that the mind, I think by nature is, is somewhat active and it's externally focused. And in meditation, you're trying to pull it inward and make it quieter. And so in, in that activity, I find in particular, you're really, you know, you're really working against uh, the natural impulse of the mind. And, um, but it has this, this great benefit of, of giving us this focus. And uh, so I, that's just bringing back to the point of the struggle between those two aspects of ourself um, that I think is characteristic of all morality in some extent is that we're trying to, um, we're trying to, to, to learn how to live from this new part of our brain but we still have all of that old part of ourself, and this is um, this is an ongoing struggle. And and of course, it's it's a really it's really big when you you look at something like the obesity problem. Uh, you know, we have it's bad enough that we have this problem, but now we've got people spending billions of dollars all over the world trying to take advantage, trying to get us to trying to override our our kind of ethical systems that say, no, I shouldn't eat anymore by tempting us with eating more. And it's, so there's a real, there's a real, um, I was thinking this is in, in the, you know, in earlier times, we would call those beings who are trying to tempt us in such a way, the devil. And now we call them marketers and <laughs> which, um, yeah, I mean, it, the spirit of Mala in, uh, Buddhism, you know, you was tempting the Buddha when he was trying to meditate and become enlightened and the spirit of Mala came down. Well, I know a lot of Buddhists today who, who yeah, at my local temple, who I wouldn't have realized this, but they look at Mala as an internal element of, of your own mind that you're dealing with. Yeah. And what else? I mean, unless we want to get into to supernaturalism, what else could it be? Uh, right. Actually, that, that brings up a, another interesting thing I've been actually writing about is the Buddhist idea of karma. And we had, we had this discussion a few months ago about reincarnation. Mm. And I was realizing that when I look, when I observe my own inner being in meditation, I do have this very strong sense of these, this part, something in the past that's trying to motivate me to various kinds of behavior. And I think really, the Buddhist kind of this idea of reincarnation and that this, this past lives that are doing that is actually just what instincts so that the, where the Buddhists are thinking it's a individual past lives that are causing us to, that are, they're being a big part of the causality of our action. It's really the combined past mm -hmm. life of the species that is in, encoded in us in instincts. That is the real, the real basis of karma. Yeah, my past life is a lizard. Right, a lizard right. Our, brain, you know, not your individual past life, but all of our past life as a. Yeah. And I think that that one that um, in this sense, Darwin really can make karma a much more um, a much more useful uh, idea for a meditator. Because I, you know, karma is an idea that really is an internal idea that it's 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 most valuable if you use it as a way of thinking about what's going on in your own. Head. It's not like the scientific idea of cause and effect, which is about mm -hmm. the external, pretty much all about the external world. Uh, karma is about liberation 
is a, is meant to be a tool for liberation. But I think think realizing that those are instincts and not my the fact that I did something in a past individual life, I think is a much saner way of uh, approaching karma. And, and so I think science has something very definite or naturalism has something to really offer meditative traditions also. Yeah, I think it's all really exciting. And uh, I think, um, yeah, well, you know, this hopefully will be, uh, you know, good for people hearing this to start thinking about what they think about it. I'd like to just tie together, um, as we're coming close to the end of our time, I'd like to tie together that that virtue, good, the good life in the sense of being good virtuously, uh, ethically, whatever you call it, uh, and the sense of the good life as in happy life. And uh, what a lot of uh, ancient philosophers said was that they're the same thing. So when they say the good life, they mean good in both senses of the word. And, uh, you know, it was like this, uh, what, you know, Socrates said was that evil comes from ignorance. And that, uh, and I used to think that was weird and naive and not true because I knew that there were people out there doing evil and they knew what they were doing. They were, <laughs> they knew they were bad and they were doing it. So I didn't understand. I was, I was taking it at a much more shallow level and what they were ignorant of is true benefit and true harm. They were ignorant of the fact they were harming themselves, that they were not really getting as good of a life as they could have gotten uh, that could be enjoyed by someone who has the peace of mind knowing that they're uh, living rightly. And um, so for them, wisdom and happiness uh, were th and, and virtue were all the same because mm -hmm. it, it, it makes you happy to live wisely. That's what living wisely is, living in accord with your nature. And it makes you happy to do that. And living virtuously is our nature as moral, rational beings. And that animal part of us is not the part that like the Stoics, for example, associated with, they associated with the moral rational being. And you were talking about this split idea and the way I kind of look at it is like, we're, we're all riding around these animals and, and we've got the moral rational being is the person on top riding the animal. And some people haven't trained their animal well at all. And it's deciding it's going around rampaging and doing all kinds of stuff. And they're just holding on to this animal as it's, as it's bucking and doing all these things, they're just along for the ride and other people have their animal well-trained and that animal only goes and does the things that the moral rational being, the, the rational part of your mind says, this is what we're going to have. But that doesn't mean we live like robots. Of course, it just means that, uh, you know, we are civilized. <laughs> yeah. Plato had that same one in his, uh, Phaedrus, where he has the chariot with the good horse and the bad horse and the charioteer as the as reason that uh, very similar to notion as to what you've just said there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, that does sound familiar to me now that you mentioned it. I've, I've post invented a lot of things. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what about you, Lee? Why don't, why don't we uh, go ahead and wrap up and do you have any final thoughts on this? Uh, given that was uh, your, your topic for today? Well, once again, um, it's been a very interesting conversation. I think, um, okay, there goes thunder. <laughs> We're gonna end dramatically. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. 
One of the uh, things that Thomas brought up, and, and I guess that both of you brought up that it's made me uh, think about, is that animals are, um, you know, solely focused on their external environment. And what makes us human is that we look internally. And now I kind of see that degree where you were talking about, you know, uh, people that don't consider doing evil to be evil as kind of being more towards the closer end of the animal spectrum and not being far enough on the human spectrum to look inward to understand that, you know, being a human being is uh, being compassionate and um, knowing what your moral code is. And like you said, you know, having a, a set of ethics and everything. So lots to think about. <laughs> and one final uh, dramatic thunderbolt there. Uh, that's the feature now. It's pretty consistent right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you both uh, so much for joining me today on this. Um, it is a fascinating discussion, and I always feel like, uh, you know, there's so many interesting things we could get into. I thought about uh, new topics we can get into as well while we were talking about all this, but uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there for now. And uh, did you have any final words, uh, Thomas? Uh, nope. Okay. Well, um, thank you for listening to our listeners. And like I said before, uh, feel free to leave us a comment or, or write us anytime. You can go to snsociety.org or spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Uh, everyone have a great one. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.